Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in First Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show. Or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit. We open our hearts. We clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this, this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. And I started to feel anxiety, you know, sweats, frustration, and it hit me that this was more than just you know, the money. God was going to bring in the money. I'd save money for taxes, but I was off. I was beginning um, to to have a fear at a different level that hit kind of the root of my expectations of what I was going to be paying. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I don't know if you've had an expectation only for it not to be met. I don't know if maybe when that happens, you do what I'm tempted to do, and you begin to put that expectation on God. So, God, why is this tax bill bigger than I thought? Why didn't you work that thing out? It was like God is saying, I didn't mess up your taxes. You did. You know? It's your fault. But you notice that we set up expectations on God, and it can affect our relationship with Him. We live in a society, a culture of high expectations. I want you to think of a lot of expectations that we live with. If you flip on a light switch, what do you think? Light's going to turn on, right? Even though we live in a desert, if we turn on the faucet, we think water is just going to come. That if it's 5.30 in the morning, there's going to be a Starbucks open somewhere. And they're going to get our coffee right. There are kids at my daughter's school that have iPhones as early as first, second, and third grade. Imagine the expectations they have in life. That Costco will always take back the merchandise I purchased from them. Amazon is always going to deliver anything I need within two days. That today, it will be between 67 and 75 degrees. 
And the biggest one, that the Google Map app will get me where I need to go. We know that's not true. Then there's the bigger ones. That your life will be better than that of your parents. That your church, if it's the right church, is going to feed you. For years, people believed that buying a home was the best investment and that the price which has continued to increase. That finding the right job will bring you contentment and financial security. That if you get sick, there will be a cure. That your marriage will always remain solid. Your kids will grow up well, do a good college, get a great job, have a great family, and take care of you when you're old. Amen. If you're single, that as soon as you get married, all your problems will go away. Why is that funny? <laughs> I want you to stop and think of your own list of expectations. Usually they focus in areas of health and safety, wealth, standard of living, your relationships. These expectations are formed from our past experiences. They're formed by our own desires. They're formed largely by, by culture and by media that bombards you, not just what you should have, but what you're entitled to. If you look at any commercial, it's about what you deserve. And we live in a culture where we expect so many things on a daily basis. And it's hard. We really can't um, not have expectations. But we got to understand that these expectations become the framework by which we make decisions. How we invest in our time, our energy, our resources, and ultimately how we relate to God and to other people. I don't know about you, but isn't it funny that when everything's going well, your expectations are being met, you have a positive um, view of God. But as soon as something like your taxes or something like sickness or something like fill in the blank goes wrong, questions begin to come and they can even sour your understanding of God. See, in the last couple of years, I've watched this happen. I've had friends lose their husband or wife to sickness. I've seen strong marriages absolutely unravel. I've seen people lose their homes. And I've seen good parents lose their kids to drugs or alcohol, depression, or have a child out of wedlock. And I always notice that there's a crowd around those situations of people that ask, how could this happen? What is God up to? Isn't God involved? And their question hits to this root level of expectation that we have on God to fulfill our expectations. I think the question that we need to ask this morning is what if your understanding of God is more shaped by your expectations of life than your expectations of life being shaped by your relationship with with God. We've been in this series on the way from the Gospel of Luke, following the life of Jesus. And see, Jesus models a completely different way to live. He models a way to live where his expectations of life were a hundred percent aligned with the will of the Heavenly Father. And a life completely in submission to God empowered by the Holy Spirit. In today's text, let me read about a story Jesus tells, an interaction he has with a man named Zacchaeus. It's right before he goes into Jerusalem. And the whole point of the story is that Jesus is telling those people like he is telling us today, you can't fit me into your expectations. You have to allow your expectations of life to be shaped and formed by an intimate relationship with me and by following and serving with me. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to ask my wife, who's a much better storyteller than I am, to read our text. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, 
but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they, re they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. In this text, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And he's been teaching as we've been studying about the kingdom been performing amazing miracles. There's this buzz that's going through the entire area. Could this be the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that we're looking for? And many had already determined that he was the one. He makes his way, and the text says he's passing into Jericho, this historic city where God, um, generations before, had done Incredible miracles. If you remember tearing down the walls. Now it's become a bustling city, a gorgeous town that is just about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem. It's filled with an aqueduct that waters these groves. Some beautiful olive trees and balsam trees. The people there are relatively content because of the wealth that has been produced. Here Jesus passes through. And there's this expectation that's building. This expectation that Jesus 
was going to be the one that once and for all would knock the Romans, knock the heathens out of this land. People were sure that this was what he had came to do. And even though many in this city were cozy with Rome, they had kind of hunkered down and become okay with a lifestyle. They had this this entitlement that they walked with, that this was their land, that regardless of how they lived their lives, that this was something that was in some ways owed to them by God. Their expectations were so heavy. And you can see that Jesus, no matter what he had told people before, and he had said it often, that his kingdom was not a kingdom of this world in the way they thought about it. That this heavy expectation that they had built had kept them from listening. Then we counter this man in Zacchaeus, who had fulfilled a lot of earthly expectations and desires, had become very wealthy through being a, a tax collector, was kind of the top of the pyramid in the city, had people that worked for him, was very wealthy, very comfortable lifestyle, but found himself discontent, hating his own life, being outcast for what he had done in many ways as a traitor to his own people. But here he gets just an expectation that if he will only see Jesus, if he can get a glimpse of Jesus, things will begin to change. Never expects that Jesus would actually come and talk to him. In the text it says that Jesus is passing through and he stops. And he stops because he needs to make a point. And the point that he needs to make is why he has come in the first place. So he picks this guy, Zacchaeus, and he responds to the small faith that was in Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, he says, come down. He initiates. He doesn't just say, let's have a conversation. He says, I want to move. I want to be with you. I want to go into your house. In fact, I'm going to pass a night at your house. And you can just sense the crowd as they were kind of marching towards Jerusalem. What, what is he doing? Wait a second. This No, this doesn't fit. Not him. Not this traitor. Not this man who sold us so he could be wealthy. And Jesus moves towards Zacchaeus. And they have this beautiful interaction where Zacchaeus, that ounce of faith, grows and he experiences the fullness of having Jesus in his home. And you can just feel Zacchaeus just come alive. As his past becomes his past very quickly. And Jesus uses some infuriating language. Because he says, look, today the house of Abraham is upon you. And if you were in the crowd, that would have been infuriating. No, not this guy, not this traitor. That's what, what this is about. Jesus wants to use Zacchaeus as an exclamation point. No, this is exactly what it's about. That I came not to fulfill your expectations. Not to do what you think I'm supposed to do for you. But I came so that I can move into the places where people need to be most restored. And I restore them completely. And then it will change everything. Zacchaeus' response is so amazing that he goes way beyond the criteria set at the time by Jewish law to restore himself to everybody. doesn't just give a tenth. gives way up and beyond. And Jesus, it's almost as he's saying, this is the response that you need to have. But it was sad because they still weren't listening. Their expectations were so heavy. It was as if they said, well, we don't understand why you do this with Zacchaeus. We don't understand why you touch lepers. We don't understand why you hang out with women of the night. But we'll kind of let that all go because you're still our man. 
You're still the guy that's going to take us home. You're still going to lead the revolution. And Jesus was like, you don't get it. Your expectations have blinded you. Can't you hear? In the text it says, he stops and tells a story because he can tell they think the kingdom is going to come now. Isn't that the way expectations work with us? We need to have it when? Now. And so he tells the story of a nobleman that goes far away. And as soon as he tells the story, everyone's ears are perking up. Because they had had a story like this. Herod and Archelaus, rulers that ruled over that area, had gone to Rome years before to get the authority that they needed to come back. So Jesus says, very much like that, I, identifies immediately, I will go away. And when he goes away, there will be a group of people that are so angry that they will actually come together, chase him down, and try to go to tell people in Rome, not him. It's a foreshadow of what that very same group of people will do to Jesus in the coming days. Or before Pontius Pilate, they will say, not that guy. We hate him. We're going to reject him. He does not fit our expectations. He tells a story as no man leaves. And turns to his servants, ten servants. And he says, you know what to do? You kind of see a smile on his face. Here, I'm going to give you Amina. And Amina, in today's terms, is about three months of an average wage. So today it'd be somewhere between ten and twelve thousand dollars. So he gives it to him, and he doesn't give him very detailed um, instructions. Doesn't micromanage them. Gives him freedom, and he says, "Go engage in business. Do what you know to do." And so he goes away, and we hear the story to put it to work. And the assumption is a lot of them. Nine of them put it to work. One doesn't. Then the nobleman comes back. And you can see as the nobleman comes back and is getting close to his house, you can see the two servants that have had success. They go and they, they could run out and go, Look, look, you gave, us, you gave us this. You entrusted us. And look what happened. You gave us $10,000. And it turned into $100,000. Give me ten thousand, it turned into fifty thousand, and the nobleman is just so happy for you. Great job! You did what I showed you to do. You were watching how I run my business. You understand what's important to me, and you did it. Fantastic! I can't wait to give you more. I can't wait to invite you to more. And then the one. Just kind of, you can see him kind of backing up, kind of hiding in the corner. Because all nine have probably had similar stories. Finally comes to him and he's like, you know what? You know, you're like this king and stuff. You know, you're big and powerful and I know you're angry. And, and if anyone doesn't do what you say, you know, you get really upset and mad. And so I, I, I knew that, so... I just kind of hunkered down and I kept it to myself. Here you go. You can read that text and you can almost at sometimes, I know growing up, feel a little sorry for the guy. But don't. The guy used his expectations as an excuse. It was an excuse to be lazy. It was an excuse to not work. It was an excuse, excuse not to trust, not to take risks. And it was birthed out of the fact that he didn't know the master. He didn't know his heart. Because an old man in the story Jesus tells says, really? You think I'm severe and mean and all these things? You don't know me. You're choosing not to know me. And so there's really no other choice 
I've given you something like I gave everyone else. And now I've got to take it from you. And in the end, this guy sadly receives the same fate as the other group of people that are so angry at the nobleman that it didn't turn out the way they wanted to. That they self-select and become enemies and receive judgment. There's nothing left to be done. You can see Jesus telling the story and everyone's face just being like, huh? You're talking about us? And even after this story, you know what's crazy? They still think that he's going into Rome to knock out the Romans. But literally the next passage is of Jesus in the triumphal entry where they're laying down palm branches because they think he's going in to start a revolution. Their expectations were so entrenched that they couldn't even hear the story that Jesus put in such stark terms. See, the, the message for us from this story is that Jesus wants us to know as he wanted them to know years ago that the expectations that you're going to form about life cannot be the grid, cannot be the framework that you try to use to understand God. You literally cannot fit Him into these expectations, whatever they may be. But only through a relationship of the Master, the nobleman, the King, Jesus, can you have expectations that are based upon Him and His kingdom. This story, although it has money in it, it's not about how to put your money to work. I'm sorry, this isn't a, a parable on how to increase your wealth. That if you just give it to the church, your money's going to go from 10000 to 100000 No, the story is about vocation. The story is about everything that God has given you, everything that is in your hand. He used money because he knew his audience. His audience locked on to money, held money as security. So he's used that as the, the main analogy in the text to show that, look, even the money that you have is not yours, but is God's. And that everything you have is His. If you want to know what your calling in life is, it's very simple. It's to use everything you've been given, your body, your mind, your money, your resources, your relationships, in service to the King, King Jesus, and for His kingdom. What's amazing is there's a lot of freedom there. It's like the Father is saying to you, you know what to do. Wink, wink. You've been around. You've hung out with me. You know I love to hang out with sinners. Go do the same. You know I love to hang out with the poor. You know that I like to go and even hang out with the rich. So they all might come into the kingdom. Go do the same. It doesn't matter. Every one of you will do something different. And there will be different growth patterns. For some, it will just explode. For others, it will grow a little. But it all goes in the same pot. Because it's his pot. Right? I used to think when I read this as a kid, that's not fair. They're going to get 10. They're going to get 5. I want 20. Then you realize it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about King Jesus. And he was trying to make this clear to the people that were following him. And even his disciples didn't get it. Even the ones that had seen it close up. Question to us, are we getting it this morning? Or do we still try to fit Jesus into what we think he should be doing for us? Secondly, Jesus 
establishes clear expectations that we can trust. Part of fantastic leadership is in creating clear expectations. If you want to be a good parent, create clear expectations for your kids. If you want to be a good boss, create clear expectations. What they can expect of you and what you can expect of them. Fantastic way to lead. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Here's some expectations. Pretty straightforward. I'm king, you're not. <laughs> okay, that's good. We laugh. But that's huge. I want to reign. You get to follow. The ones that rejected him said, we don't want him in control of us. That's our culture today, folks. It's my choice. I drive. Jesus gets to be my co-pilot. You see that? If we don't get this first one down, we're sunk. I'm King Jesus, he says. And you know what? Then I do some pretty fantastic stuff. I make the initiative. I move into situations that are hard. I expect you to steward what I give you. That was a clear expectation. Here's an expectation for you. If you're following Christ, you cannot go and hide. You cannot sit and count down the clock. You cannot wait until eternity. All the theology says, oh, when we get to heaven. No, now. Jesus is inviting you. Kingdom has come now. Heaven is working itself out now. Will you enter in? Will you follow Him? Don't you dare go and hide and risk losing it all because you think it's about you. See, the third is that investing in God's kingdom produces exponential returns. The mina explodes. And what was amazing was when they came back, there was joy in the servants. And the joy was not, hey, look what I did. Look what a fantastic financial planner I was. I didn't just do Dave Ramsey 1 and 2. I did it like all the way. I say this, we just finished Dave Ramsey, and it was phenomenal. But what they said was, look at what happened when we just stewarded your Mina. God's kingdom is the one that's at work. That there's power in it. That if you do anything in serving Christ, it doesn't go void. Listen to that. Anything you do in following Christ does not go void. If I was to take you back 10 years, 2004, and I was going to say, hey, I've got a stock tip. You know, you can go back and you can buy Apple. Okay, so let's buy some Apple stock. Apple stock in 2004 was $13. So let's take a mina of Apple stock. 10000 bucks. Do you know what 10000 bucks of Apple is worth today? $407,000 as of last night. Okay. Deep sigh. What would you do? You would go back if you had that uncertainty. And if you did anything like I would do, you'd sell everything you had and you'd buy up a bunch of Apple stock. Why? Because you knew of the return. You knew that there was no risk. Right? Jesus is saying in this passage, there is no risk. The bigger risk is not investing. The biggest risk following Christ is in not taking risks to follow Him, whatever they may be. But if you do, the rewards are exponential. If you're here this morning, you have anxiety, if you have frustration, if you have some hang-ups with God, I'll bet that there's somewhere an expectation you have of Him that are not being met. And if you give it back to Him, He's going to lead you on a pretty wild and crazy life. 
That's amazing. Filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with sorrow, filled with heartache. See, another expectation, Jesus said, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. People are going to not really like you. A lot of people here like being liked. I do. Right? Try truly following out Jesus' expectation. You respond in love versus hate. They don't go, oh, yay. They crucify you. But he says, if you'll do it, you'll have joy, you'll have life, you'll have everything I promised. A few examples. I have a friend, I do fundraising for another ministry in Haiti. And last year there was a big campaign, a big ramp up for a family center. And it was starting off pretty sparse. A friend of mine called me. He said, Pete, we've been praying and, and just God has put something on our heart. We got some stock that came in. They're not overly wealthy. This is not like, you know, this, this Uber millionaire. It's just, you know, they do well. But they got some stock. They said, we feel we've got to give it all. That's what God's called us to do. And I'm like, that's fantastic. Great. Praise God. How much, you know, is it? I said, 30000 I said, that's great. You have two girls. He's also my friend. Are you sure you want to give it all? Because even I'm thinking, hey, you might want to save some of that for your kids. I said, no, we want to give it all. I said, okay. By the time he sold it, it was worth $49,000 two weeks later. Something happened in the stock market. And from that gift that he gave, it started this momentum that led to more than 350000 being raised over the course of the summer, which if you ever tried to raise money, in the summer it's the worst time to raise money. But it wasn't just that exponential growth. What I saw in my friend was what it did in him. By letting go of the money, it wasn't just about the money, it was about his heart. And he said, Pete, I don't feel like I truly trust God. And this is part of my journey in doing that. And after he's done that, I've seen the change in the way that he leads in his home, the vision he has for his kids, even how he and his wife make decisions. Because he's let go and say, it's not mine anyway, it's God's. Another friend of mine sold a business. And if I'd be tempted to go play golf three times a week if I were him. Instead, he moves to Haiti, takes his whole family down there. Builds, builds the, he's starting to build this family center that my other friend gave money towards. And now because of him, there's 13 to 15 orphans getting homes, hundreds of families going to be served. The exponential growth, one decision. Here in our church, got an email this week from Safe Families. Blown away. Got seven families now in the process where they're taking children from mostly moms that are going through drug or alcohol or being rescued from prostitution and normally would have to give up their kids. We have families now from our church inviting them in. And I was in one of those homes of a friend of mine that has two kids that have come in and I'm sitting there thinking, Seal Beach, you know, they must have like, you know, a big house. I go into his home. There's two bedrooms. Their parent, their their bedroom, and then this small bedroom where five kids I think are stacked up on top of each other. And then I asked him, you know, is that tough? He's like, Yeah, but man, God this year has been doing incredible things in my life. It's just amazing to watch what God's doing in our church and as I get to do it with other people, there's this growth, there's this movement. It's exponential. And then this last week, God gave me a gift. I'm letting you guys know. <laughs> I talk like this not because I'm trying to be cool. Um, <laughs> but I had shot a few years ago up in El Salvador. Some guy jumped down and started shooting. You know, you know the story. Well, I've always still kind of wrestled with God about that. Why? You know, I would have liked to have a voice. Um, a lot of social situations I don't like being in because I can't talk. I, I wrestled with that a little bit. Got this email, and the email made me start to go back and look at what happened in the area. When we first went to that area, 
the ministry was working with one church, the 19, 20 people, completely just poverty-stricken area. And literally over 10 years, um, the growth has been incredible. And even after I was shot, literally the second day, our team went up to reassure everybody that we were not going to stop working with them. Continue to work with them. And today there's 12 churches, 1,000 people, 250 leaders, impacting over 50,000 people in the area. Water available from 20% that, that used to have it now up to 90%. Just, just astronomical growth. What was amazing to me as I reflected on it was that I worked there for five years. I took a bullet. There was a lot that I was involved in. But people worked far harder than I did. I mean, I just worked there for a little bit. But see, when we, when we put everything back in, we all own share in the same company. We all have stock in the kingdom. So exponential growth is not just about my mina. It's about ours. God gave it to a group. So it grows and it expands. And you get to celebrate with all the others that are doing the same. That's called community. Following Christ together. But sometimes, Jesus gives us a little glimpse of the outcomes. Because normally, the older I get, I'm realizing that i got to let go of knowing the outcomes of what I'm trying to do. That if I try to control the type of impact I'm having, how people see me, the kingdom I'm building, how great of a job I'm doing, that I'm going to have anxiety, frustration, concern, midlife crisis. But if I let it go, I can just give it to God. But every once in a while, He gives you a nugget. So on the email, I'm reading it, and my mouth drops. Because there was two guys that were shooting at me seven years ago. And one of the guys, this last week, we got the call that he had gone to one of the churches that had grown and gave his entire life to the Lord. And his family got saved. And he confessed. We never knew who had shot me. Confessed to being one of the two shooters. And I might actually get a chance to meet him later this year. See, I had no idea what God's doing. You know, God took this event that was so horrific in many ways. And just goes, watch, just wait. And isn't that Him? I'm alive, I'm walking. I sometimes think of Jesus' expectation. See, we had all this crowd around Jesus expecting things from Him for them. Jesus knew what to expect. He was walking to the cross. His expectation was, I'm walking towards suffering. I'm walking towards pain. I'm walking towards rejection. But I'm doing it for the purpose of the Master. This morning, the question is, is where are you at? <clears throat> are there expectations that are keeping you from truly letting it all go? See, the key is there's two groups here that we can look to. The first group is obviously the citizens that just absolutely downright hated God, hated Jesus, because they didn't want to be reigned by God. They wanted to do their own thing. And you know, that might be some of you this morning. You just don't want anyone in. You want to remain in control. Or you're using some excuses like the, like the third servant. You maybe even had some pain, some hurt. And so it's easy to look at God and say, you know what, He is He's unknowable. He's kind of distant. He's hard. The, the part that's just sad about that is it's your own expectations that block you from experiencing God. But see, the other two examples started with Zacchaeus. And his example was of humility. And it starts with humility. Letting go just wanting a piece of Jesus. Just wanting a glimpse. And then when he moves towards you, which he will, saying, I don't just want a glimpse. Come into my house. Look at everything. And I want to throw it all on the table. 
I wish I could say Christianity was incremental. But you can't read scripture and see it. People that respond to him kind of go all in. But then it's also a life of faithfulness. Those two servants, they didn't know how long it was going to be. I bet you they got weary. I bet you they looked at the third servant and was like, that guy's got it easier. He's just got to hang it out. If you've been serving God for a while, you're going to go through peaks and valleys. And I really want you to be encouraged this morning. Nothing you do in following Christ is in vain. You do not see what God is doing in your life and around you if you're following Him. Please be encouraged this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You've set clear expectations for us. Ones we can follow. That You're a King we are not. And that if we would just even take that in, the freedom we would gain the anxiety that would cease. We realize that you own it all and we can just serve. Let that be our heart. But God, we do build up expectations. We live in a world that helps shape them and form them and even build us into entitlements. God, give us the courage to take steps of humility and let it all go. I pray, Lord, for joy in this congregation. That, God, it would become cultural for us to serve. That we would lift each other up celebrating what it means to follow you, God, and watching the exponential growth happen. Just thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.